But I also see a lot of really wonderful inclusions of Heavenly Mother in not just our creation, but in some things, other parts of the plan of salvation that she has care for us here. She can interact for our good. Jeffrey Holmes wife said that. And there are some other really beautiful statements that just like our father and mother care about us here and have influence over us, Harold B. Lee said that she too has influence over us here and cares for us. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture. Digging deeper and having a whole lot of fun. Learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. This is Russell Stevenson with LDS Perspectives. And today we're going to be talking about an issue that has been often undiscussed within the Latter-day Saint tradition, and that is the doctrine and the teaching of Heavenly Mother. We have with us two experts in various ways on the imagining and on the history of the teaching of Heavenly Mother. First, we have Rachel Hunt Steenblick. She is a doctoral student at Claremont Graduate University's Department of Philosophy of Religion and Theology. She is a co-editor on the volume Mormon Feminism, Essential Writings, and was a prominent researcher for the article in BYU Studies entitled Mother There, a survey of historical teachings about Mother in Heaven. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thank you for having me. We also have Caitlin Maxfield Connolly. She is an artist. She received a Bachelor's of Fine Arts from the University of Utah. Her artwork is found in private and public collections throughout the Wasatch Front, and her art is also featured prominently on the recently published volume, Our Heavenly Family, Our Earthly Families, published by Desert Book. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's start talking about this in rather general terms. We have this tradition of there being a divine feminine within Latter-day Saint teachings and doctrine, but it feels so vague. It feels like something that we haven't been able to wrap our minds, our arms around. We just don't know exactly what it is, but we do know some things. And Rachel, given your extensive research, give us kind of a bird's eye view of what the divine feminine is within the Latter-day Saint tradition. The simplest way to explain it, I think, is just as Latter-day Saints, we believe in a father in heaven who loves us and who cares about us. And the idea of a heavenly mother is so similar, that there is a mother in heaven who also loves us and who also cares about us as her children. And it is vague and it is tricky to talk about in part because we don't have a lot or explicit things in scriptures, but... We know Liza's hymn where she asks if there's a mother there and she answers that truth tells her that there is. And we have the family proclamation that states that we are beloved sons and daughters of heavenly parents. And so those are the two things that we might be most familiar with, but there is a lot more. Kayla, your artwork on the cover of of this new book, it depicts deity-like figures, you know, a father and a mother and all of their children. In the media, this has been billed as a depiction of Heavenly Mother, as you drew this painting, what influenced your thinking and what were you really going for? When I was painting this image, well, I guess first I started with a drawing. So when I drew this, I was really coming from a very, very personal place. And I was in my own personal place of, I think a lot of women struggle with this. I don't know how I was feeling is that uncommon, but feeling like, where do I belong in the eternities? and this kind of search and longing for a heavenly mother. So when I drew it, I was really feeling, I was focusing on this kind of heavenly mother type experience and the male and the female and how does it work together. And so that was what I was exploring. As I put it out there, it was interesting to see how it was received because it was received in a lot of different ways. I think any good art, which I hope it is, takes on multiple meanings in the end. And so I think there's room for that image to grow. 
Now, in an interview that you conducted with aspiring Mormon women, you made comments about how much you value the act of nurturing, right? How important mm-hmm. nurturing is to notions of motherhood. Did that thinking interplay with how you depicted a heavenly mother in this context? In the image, the woman is fertile. She's pregnant. She has a belly. She has breasts. She's very, the the shapes, the circle of shapes help build this kind of round figure. All of these things feel nurturing to me, where the men I often draw are a little bit more angular and rigid. And so there is that nurturing coming into play in the image in a subtle way. Rachel, this notion of the divine feminine, of a heavenly mother, It has been around for a long time, even if it wasn't at the forefront of Latter-day Saint discourse. So how about you walk us through, obviously, Eliza R. Snow's piece is a major part of this, but there's much more, too. Yeah, so much more. So many people believe that Eliza's hymn is the first thing that we have on Heavenly Mother, but that's not the case. We actually have two pieces by W.W. Phelps that were published before Eliza's hymn, and she had first published that as a poem. W.W. Phelps's piece were both in 1844. One was a few months before Joseph Smith passed away, and the other was a few months after he passed away. And the first was a poem called A Song of Zion, where he just simply referred to Heavenly Mother as a Queen of Heaven. And the next was a hymn that he wrote specifically for a dedication of a 70s hall, and it was called A Voice from the Prophet, Come to Me. And the stanza that's relevant said, Come to me, here's the mystery that man hath not seen. Here's our Father in Heaven and Mother the Queen. Those are two of the very first things that we have. We don't know for sure if Joseph Smith taught it because we don't have explicit writings from him saying that he did or showing that he did. But the fact that W.W. Phelps is writing this before and after Joseph's death, the fact that Eliza is writing it a few months or a year after his death as well, like it seems to be kind of common knowledge, especially of those who are really, really close to Joseph, either working on projects with him or really familiar with the theology that he's doing. And we also have... Eliza's hymn, 10 months after W. Phelps' second piece, but then we also have some tertiary evidence that Joseph did teach it. Within the Latter-day Saint tradition, we believe that deities are embodied, that they have bodies of flesh and bone, and that in some way these bodies are functional. Do you see that kind of teaching endure through the Latter-day Saint discussions on Heavenly Mother? In some of my work, I have seen that, that I think, because other feminist theologies and just other theologies do express the same need for divine feminine, but in the Mormon conception of Heavenly Mother, it becomes so important because we believe that gender is eternal and because we believe that God does have a body, that that was one of the things Joseph learned in the first vision, and so that becomes so important to me as a woman and kind of plays into similar feelings I've had as Caitlin of just this longing and search for knowing my place and the knowing that my female body matters and that I have a place in heaven. Right, and your comments, Caitlin, uh, really speak to this. You mentioned that having a body, having breasts, having a womb, that influences how you depicted motherhood in your artwork. Absolutely. I mean, it's pretty fundamental. It's like men and women are built different, and it just begs the question of why. And then I think when you say, I am a woman, I have these components, I am different from a man, then you just say, you can either go one direction or the other. You say, I'm worse than, I don't matter, there's something less than here. Or you say, this is important and valuable. And just because we don't know that much about it doesn't mean it's not valuable. That's kind of that search I go on and say, okay, well, I just don't have any information. So this is me sketching and drawing is just trying to say, well, I'm just trying to find information. I'm, I'm, I'm lacking in information. I, I want more. Yes. And, you know, this notion of, uh, you know, the essentialism of, of one's sex, of one's gender, you can find teachings on that throughout the Latter-day Saint tradition, you know, James E. Talmadge and others. But I'm interested to see 
exactly what attributes various historical church leaders have attributed to Heavenly Mother. Rachel, I'm curious to see what kinds of teachings you have found in your research. So one of the most common ways or common things that is spoken about her is simply that women are created in her image. And so we have at least three modern prophets who taught this. We have Harold B. Lee, we have Joseph Fielding Smith, and we have Spencer W. Kimball, who all suggested very strongly that women are specifically created in her image. And they use the scripture in Genesis to do that, that male and female are created in the image of God to say that we are created in her image. And so that's one of the things they teach. But Spencer W. Kimball also would talk about her eternal majesty or some of these other characteristics. And so they do place her as glorified and exalted with the Father, as well as having some eternal nurturing characteristics too. Sometimes within our uh, popular discourse, we describe men provide, they, you know, they go out there and earn a living, you know, they engage in politics business, whereas, you know, women are sort of the sovereigns over the home and earth. Do you see this kind of dichotomy projected onto the Heavenly Father, Heavenly Mother relationship in these teachings that you've studied, Rachel? There's some of that in Hugh Nibley's writings. He is not a general authority, but has done a lot of work on the church and especially studying ancient cultures and their religions. And so he's seen patterns in Egyptian cultures where there, instead of the Godhead that we know is the Trinity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, that some of those cultures saw mother, father together, and son, and even sometimes a daughter. But he did talk specifically in one of these long writings that Heavenly Mother was the hearth, like she's the home, she's the one who doesn't go out on these adventures, but those who leave come back. So either Christ or the Oedipus character comes back. But I also see a lot of really wonderful inclusions of Heavenly Mother in not just our creation, but in some things, other parts of the plan of salvation that she has care for us here. She can interact for our good. Jeffrey Holmes wife said that. And there are some other really beautiful statements that just like our father and mother care about us here and have influence over us. Harold B. Lee said that she too has influence over us here and cares for us. Speaking to Rachel's comment, the only experience I have around Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother having these separate roles is really just the most simple is that I pray to Heavenly Father. I don't pray to Heavenly Mother. And again, I think that's one of those things where I think to myself, is that a bad thing? You know, is it like she can't handle it? In the past, I would put negative association with that of, well, why don't I pray to her there? But in the end, I know if they're equally yoked, then I think it's not a negative or a positive experience. It's just something, and I, but I, it's a different thing. It's different. And so I'm still trying to make sense of that. One of the explanations that has been offered for why we don't talk so much about Heavenly Mother is that you know, she is so sacred. She is so pure. She shouldn't have to deal with that kind of scrutiny or that mm -hmm. kind of criticism. And Rachel, I'm interested to see where we see this sort of idea bubbling up. Uh, what's the origins for it? We tried so hard to find this when I was researching on the BYU Studies article on Mother there. And the most that we could find was a seminary teacher and institute director for the church named Hoyt W. Brewster, Jr., claiming the holy name of deity is blasphemed when used in concert with gutter language and misused in everyday expressions. And then he asked, is it any wonder that our Father in Heaven has been so protective of the identity of our Mother in Heaven? So just the seminary teacher's question that this might be a plausible reason. And then in Linda Wilcox, she wrote an article when she was working for the Church History Library about the conception of Heavenly Mother and Mormonism. And she also found just a statement by a seminary teacher suggesting more or less the same thing. So we don't have any general authority saying this. And everything that we found, there's no prophet, no apostle that repeats this or publishes this in a public way. But it's common, like people say it if you talk, it can happen in primary, it can happen in any church setting. Like this is just a common thought, but it's not based on anything from a general authority. Well, and it seems to be a manifestation of 
you know, maybe 19th century conventional wisdom about Victorian womanhood, mm-hmm. you know, women being sort of the pure sovereigns of the home, of their pious. They're not equipped for like the rough and tumble world of politics, right, and business and, and criticism. This strikes me as more folk wisdom and, and conventional thinking than it does anything that we would describe as official doctrine. Absolutely. Or even Caitlin's question of can she handle it about prayer, but I think it applies even more here. Like she could handle us talking about her. That's not an issue. And so those things I think were based in something rather than doctrine or rather than even teaching some church leaders. Well, and the reaction I have to that is I think it's interesting with everything, right? We're taking our moral experience and we're projecting onto this and it's just we're so lacking in information. And a lot of times we say we take this, she's so pure, she's so pure, and she can't handle it. And we put those together. I'm like, oh, those are totally opposite messages, right? So I think there's something, could she be so holy and so sacred that she's not involved in this? Sure. Does that mean she can't handle it or she's less than? No. I think sometimes we just, we take what we can, we grasp, we put it together and it's kind of like a messy, nasty sandwich. And trying to separate the pieces of truth is important and difficult. Now, over the course of both your research, Rachel, and, and your work, Caitlin, what kinds of responses have you received, either from official church leadership or from uh, your fellow members of your ecclesiastical units? The article that became a mother there for BYU Studies, it was first given as a speech in 2009 at BYU for a woman's colloquium. And at the time... So it took two years to publish in 2011, and there was a lot of back and forth with church leaders, including apostles, that were participating in this publishing process, reading our drafts, reading these different things, and they had approval of this. And then the gospel topic essay that the Church History Library recently put out called Mother in Heaven has quotes from the BYU Studies article, and we know from the church historian Snow that the the first presidency has stamped approval of these gospel topic essays. So we know that these things that are in there are sanctioned, or at least that people can be aware of them and know about them. And no one has resisted anything that you've said or talked about? Not at all. And how about your work, Caitlin? Sure. I can speak to two pieces that have been more accepted just because they've been published. So one would be the cover of Women at Church. I did the artwork for that. And that represented two women standing back to back, and it was the title was called Women Debating Two Truths. And that piece was received, from what I understand, I'm sure the negative comments, they don't come to me, right? They, they go to somebody else, but I hear all the good stuff. Everyone loves my work. But um, people really appreciated that because it showed two women with different perspectives being able to say, hey, you know, kind of let's understand each other. We both have a piece of the truth here. So I think that was um, important. It felt important to me, and, and that's why I enjoyed it. I can speak directly to the artwork of this book, Our Heavenly Family, Our Earthly Families. That was received really well. When I drew it, I had in my heart this kind of search and intent of Heavenly Mother. And as soon as I shared it with my, uh, I guess, followers or, or whatever social media platforms, people saw all kinds of things, I think, and women especially. They saw themselves as a woman, as a mother, as a sister, as a friend. You know, they saw Heavenly Mother and they saw Adam and Eve. It was just this acceptance of them as female. And I think that was really exciting. And I think the reason it was received so well was just because what I feel personally, and I've had this echo, just needing to see themselves. There's a hunger and a thirst for who am I and where am I? And 
I don't think this is doctrine, my image. I don't think it's like true, you know, I don't know, but it's something. And I think we need things. It is one of those things that people can look at and think about. This conversation that we've been having is clear that notions of the divine feminine within the Latter-day Saint tradition, I mean, that there is a grounding for it. And yet, again, it's, it's so rarely discussed. Why is that? Well, it almost seems like there is a sort of sacred silence surrounding a, the notion of Heavenly Mother. Rachel? In my research, I don't think there is. Like I mentioned, we just couldn't find anything by general authorities, either from the very early days of the church, Joseph Smith's time, or even modern, that have repeated the statements that she's too sacred to talk about. And in fact, we found quite the opposite, that they've talked about her often, including and especially the very early brethren, that just like today, I might bear my testimony in my ward and say, I know Heavenly Father loves me and cares about me. They would just say, I know my Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother love me and care about me, that whatever they were talking about, they would include her. If they were talking about suffering, they'd include her. That was the very early day, like Orson mm. F. Whitney. And oh, so okay. like, so the very early leaders of the church that were okay. general authorities then, that's how they would talk. Okay. And so it has come, again, to be the case, but usually with the phrase heavenly parents. Mm. We did have Jeffrey R. Holland in 2015, one of his conference talks, say the phrase mother in heaven. And that was the first time it had been in conference for over 10 years. Wow, that's remarkable. Why has there been some resistance on the local level to discuss notions of the divine feminine? I think it's lack of information. For what we have, we're doing the best we can. You know, for what I know, I'm I'm doing the best paintings and drawings that I can, and I don't have a lot to go off of. And I think a lot of authors and artists and other creative types feel similarly, and it sounds like in the academic world it's true as well. Yeah, I think that some of it too is what we've said, just not knowing that you can. And mm. so one of our main goals of the BYU Studies article is just to say, yes, we can talk about her. Like, we hold temples to be so sacred, but we have pictures of them in our home. We hold temples to be so sacred, but we talk about them in lessons. Mm -hmm. And so this is what we were trying to hope would happen with the article, and I think with things like the church history libraries, gospel topic essays, that we have this opening, that it's more common to talk about Heavenly Mother, and I think people know that it's possible. On a psychological level, too, I think fear is huge. People are afraid of making mistakes. I think especially maybe coming from a, a gospel culture where it's like, I know this, I know that, I know this, I know that. It's kind of like, I don't absolutely know, but something like this feels true to me today and I'm working through it. Sometimes that takes some personal responsibility to really say like, this is what I understand and I know that it's not in the scriptures and I'm and this is just where I am personally today. And I'm gonna keep learning and keep working through this. Does that make sense? Oh uh, Yes, absolutely. Given the kind of teaching that we have on the table that is that is well known, where do we go from here? So Kaylin has talked about her work as an artist, and she mentioned like other creative types of creative people, that they just draw from what they have, like personal feelings or questions or these things. And so we even have this history that where the idea of Heavenly Mother has shown up the most, because we don't have it in scriptures, like it's not in the Bible. Old Testament scholars can find it there, but it's not written so clearly for everyone. Where we find her is in poetry and in hymns, both from males and from females, because we have W.W. Phelps writing hymns about Heavenly Mother. We have Eliza Arsenault writing hymns and poetry about Heavenly Mother. But this history is actually something that's continued today. And so in 2013, my friend Martin Polito and another friend Caroline Klein, they were both classmates of mine at various stages in my career. Once Martin and I were studied together at BYU, Caroline at Claremont. But they had this idea to create more art and more writings about her and to be able to think about her for herself and so it was such a beautiful way to follow the tradition and that this is one way that we can look for her and even just think about her in a way 
that is nice. They're not saying, like where Caitlin said, she offers something where it's like, we're not saying that this is true or exactly how it is, but we're asking the questions. And I think that that's really beautiful. And mm. so that tradition is continued today. So I think that's where we are, is that there are more people drawing or painting or writing poems and other things about her. Excellent. Caitlin? Yeah, well, I obviously love everything Rachel just said. I think the act of creating itself is the act of asking and answering questions. And I think another thing that creating does, at least for me, speaking from my own perspective, is it speaks to the emptiness that you feel. I feel like I'm constantly trying to fill a void. So if I am asking questions and filling voids, then I think there are many things that are going to come up in my artwork, many different topics, and Heavenly Mother will be one of them because she fits both of that criteria. Kind of echo what Rachel said. Yeah, ask questions, be curious, just for yourself. Faith is a personal pursuit. You know, my, my drawing really was for me, and I think it's lovely if it works for somebody else, and I don't expect it to. It doesn't have to. I think we each have our own responsibility to do that, I think is another thing that we can say, you know, what's next? Everybody take their own personal responsibility to say, what do I want to know? What am I looking for? And, and that's just in life and religion in every, every way that it expands. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fascinating discussion about not only the history of the teachings about Heavenly Mother, but also how it is imagined in contemporary discourse and how we're seeing something of a renaissance in how we discuss notions of Heavenly Mother. Here's what's coming up on the next episode of the LDS Perspectives podcast. Uh-huh. She accomplished quite a, quite a few things in her life, things we haven't even touched on. For example, the Relief Society magazine that she also started. She was involved with work at BYU, and she just has so many accomplishments that she's put together. If she was to have a building named after her, <laughs> what type of building would that be? What kind of memorial would be appropriate? You know, it would depend on what period of her life you were focusing in on. I think she would have answered that question differently at different times. But certainly by the end of her life and by the, the last three decades or so of her life, it would definitely have been about genealogy and temple work. So maybe the Family History Library over on West Temple ought to be renamed as the Susie Young Gates Memorial Library because uh, that would be a fitting tribute to her. LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone, and LDS Perspectives Podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS Church leaders, policies, or practices. <laughs>